0: So my name is Corey Toll. I'm the CEO of Climate. We are an outdoor gear manufacturer and we design and manufacture all types of outdoor gear. We're based here in Utah and our specialty is really using inflation to make the outdoor sleeping experience better. So our brand is all about helping consumers really enjoy the outdoors by getting a good night's sleep. So we make a number of camping pads and sleeping bags. Pillows and accessories that utilize inflation to make your gear lighter weight, more comfortable to use. So I'm the CEO. I joined the company back in 2008. Before we had any revenue, we were just in the ideation stage. I came on to develop the product originally, which was really fun coming from my background in, in engineering. And then in 2011, I was asked to step up and run the company. We actually began the company based off of an idea for apparel. It was a jacket that would inflate or deflate. You could change your insulation depending on how much warmth you wanted. It's kind of an on-the-fly, warmth-changing product. So we developed that product, and through that experience, we developed some really unique abilities to design inflatable products. 2009, 2010, we tried to establish distribution with our apparel, and it was very difficult. It didn't take very well, but we had come up with some other ideas for some camping pads using our inflation. And we started to shop those ideas around as well as our apparel. And we saw that the market was starting to gravitate a lot more and actually buy our camping pads. So when I took over in 2011, we kind of pivoted the company completely away, eventually completely away from apparel and just focused on gear. And since then, we've come up with some really unique designs that have allowed us to get a lot of market share and really uh, bring a a great product to the market at a a reasonable price. So currently, we're uh, we're growing really fast year over year. We're like six, 60% year-over-year growth, adding employees pretty quickly and focusing on taking as much market share as we can in the outdoor sleep category.
1: Has there been any difficult times in growing the company?
0: Yeah, super difficult times. So when I took over in 2011, of course, with distribution, establishing distribution was super challenging. Of course, we had some, as most startup companies do, had some dysfunction in the company organization as well. One of the things that we really learned through that time was what I learned personally is the absolute need for all hands on deck to be able to sell the product. (laughs) Sounds kind of silly, but it's amazing how many startup companies don't realize the necessity and the lifeblood that sells to an organization. And that was true for us as well. We liked to develop product and we liked to think that we were a cool brand, but we didn't put the emphasis on sales enough that, that we needed to. And it wasn't until we kind of went through those growing campaigns and really almost had to shut the doors down that we kind of learned that and we got really guerrilla-ish in how we approached sales and started knocking on as many doors as we could and started to open up doors one at a time. So those were definitely growing pains, challenging lessons to learn that almost killed the company. Can we talk
1: about that a little bit more? Like, were you closing? Because a lot of people who are listening, they want to learn from those experiences. And a lot of the entrepreneurs don't talk about it enough, I think. Could you talk a little bit more about realizing you had to do sales and how close you were?
0: Yeah, was, um, there was a point in which we so we had re- received some capital. We had brought in some high-level C executives to do sales, to run our sales, and at one point they were let go and the, the organization was dwindling and got, eventually got down just to, to two people, myself and another actual engineer that I had hired were the only two people left in the company at, at one point in the game. And of course, at that point, it's pretty clear that I have to learn how to sell or else at one point we were out of cash. We had a, you know, we had some inventory to sell and, but we had some debt that we had to work our way out of. And we had all we had was the inventory that we had in the warehouse. So it was either sell or starve type of mentality. That's how it got.
1: And how many people were there? Just so we know like the difference. How many people did you have when it got down to just the two of y'all before?
0: Yeah, we didn't ramp up extremely aggressive. We received our first round of capital in 2009. We brought in some individuals. We probably had seven or eight at the max. And then people started to get let go until it was just the two of us.
1: And that was 2011. Yes. And then let's talk about those low times and when you realize you had to sell instead of just develop product. It's a lot more fun, right, to develop product than sell.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> because that's what we hear all the time. That's why like everyone wants to make a great product, but it really comes down to sales. It seems like.
0: You know, and what I'd say about that is it's that's not only true for startup companies. It's true for growing companies as well. There's a mentality that it's easier to sell what you don't have, right? Rather than selling the car that's on your lot, it's easier to sell than the next thing that's being developed. And that's a mentality that we still fight today because we really like to innovate. We really like to develop, But we have to focus and refocus our efforts on selling the stuff that we have, that we've created, that we've bought inventory of. So that's a mentality that doesn't necessarily go away. But it is true. Most people gravitate towards, you know, they love doing a product design or development and then the sales go go by the wayside.
1: Well let's talk about how you decided to I guess make your company a little bit more niche and how you decided about inflating products versus what those other people had out there.
0: The how did we pivot away from apparel towards sleeping gear is it was a move out of desperation. Not a desperate the development of our first camping pad was a move out of desperation, but the it was a clear market feedback we got that people wanted our gear. When we started to see some growth and started to see some sales and market penetration with our camping pads. Of course, we were limited on resources and capital. So we had to make decisions of where we we're going to put our resources. So what that wasn't a difficult decision. That was a very clear decision that we needed to go in that direction.
1: Was this the point when you were actually the guy doing the sales? I might have cut in a little bit. If you want to talk about when you actually had to sell, was this all in the same time frame that you realized you had to go ahead and become more niche and start selling more product?
0: Yeah, around 2010, when our founder was still in the company, I started at that time even to implement more uh, efforts into sales. But it wasn't in 2000, 2011 when I officially took over that I really started to focus most of my effort on the sales side and the finance side of the company, trying to put as much influence as I could on the design because we had to continue to innovate and develop new products. But that was the kind of the timeline. So I saw the writing on the wall. I saw that we needed people that were going out to open doors. So tried to implement that as much as I could early on in the days. And then in 2011, when I took over, we really started to make a concerted focus on switching over. And we, at that time, we basically became a sales organization. to sell what we had in stock
1: Tell us what that meant and what you did. I guess a few stories about that.
0: Yeah, we really got just, it was less strategic and more tactical. We didn't try to come up with who we were as a brand and where we wanted to be with our ideal partners. It was more about what partners would give us an opportunity. And a lot of that was just calling on mom and pop shops, trying to sell a dozen pads into a shop or three pads at that point. It's a long road, right? Most people, most of us, we see that huge win out there, that huge customer that we're going to go land and get awesome, one big win. And that just wasn't the, way it worked for us, it was calling one shop at a time and selling three pads and getting sell through and, and reordering six pads. It was a long road. Now, we did also originally have a mentality that almost killed us in that we wanted to protect our brand, which we thought we had a brand at that point from some channels, some distribution channels. When I took over, he kind of took that off. He kind of said, whatever channels are available is what we're going to sell to. So we went out and started relationships up with Amazon. And that has become a very, very successful relationship for us. One of our best and most successful relationships is with Costco actually. They have a very unique program in which they bring in vendors and they sell out of... uh, We come in for 10 days and we set up a two-pallet display and we have one of our person on the floor selling our product. It's kind of a consignment deal. So we started that type of a program and you know started to learn about how to pitch our product and what people think about our product and actually getting a lot of people to look at it and getting a lot of feedback. And that was really, really useful. And that program is still in existence today and it's grown dramatically. And it's a huge customer of ours. And so back in 2010, 2011, when we started to get more guerrilla we started to approach these customers, all these channels and, and whatever way we could get in front of customers, we did. We had to go out and sell at a farmer's market. We would do that, either, whatever it took.
1: You brought up a couple times that you took over 2010, 2011. Can you tell us about that a little bit more? Who was in charge or why you were able to take over and just a change of power, how that worked?
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it's not abnormal for many startup companies to have a little bit of dysfunction in their leadership at the beginning and finding the right people to lead at the right time was crucial. So we had received some capital in 2009. So our founder didn't have a controlling share. And basically, our board of directors just felt that they needed a change in management. So they had come to me and asked me in 2009 to lead the company. Actually, for a small stint, we were co-presidents, myself and the founder for a few months, and that didn't work out too well. And so the board asked the founder to step down and let him go. And I stepped in and the founder at that time was just sitting on the board. So that's how I think the writing on the wall the board made the decisions for whatever. I wasn't privy to those discussions, but they made the decisions of who they thought would be best to lead the organization at that time. It
1: reminds me of the scene of The Office. I still rewatch that over and over. I guess when they had two people running the same job and you're like, (laughs) you can only have two. They had two co-managers. They're like, so you're telling me you have two guys doing one person's job, right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I can imagine. It's, yeah, it's difficult. All right, you're also talking about sales, and you're trying to figure out what you were doing right and what you were doing wrong when you were selling. Could you tell us some? Is there anything that we could learn from that when you're actually selling your product?
0: Yeah, I kind of already alluded to, I think, what is the biggest, what was our biggest problem? I'll try to specific to us. And it really was that we were a little bit uptight about and concerned about where our product or where our brand would be viewed if we were selling, for example, into Costco, which was a misconception that we had and was wrong. And so I think that was a big misconception. And then also the fact that it would be easy and that we can go out and get some huge wins out the gate without building a brand from scratch. That was a big misconception as well, calling up those shops and selling however many pads you can at a time was a super critical mentality that we had to, otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have been in position to get some of the bigger deals that we are now able to get. The third point maybe I'll mention is we also put a lot of eggs in the basket of relying on independent outside manufacturer representatives to go and open up accounts for us. And we've learned that no one can do sales as good as you can. Even if you're an engineer like myself who doesn't do sales, no one can sell your product as good as you can or as good as you should be able to. Relying on other people to go and open up doors and build your brand was not great for us. Once we figured it out ourselves, of course, then going and establishing those relationships and understanding what you can hold other people to, how to sell the product was critical. But just outsourcing sales from the beginning was a bad decision. And I've seen it with a lot of other startup companies too. A lot of inventors think, hey, I'm just going to invent this thing and then I have someone else come and do a sales. And my strong voice of of caution to all those inventors is go out and sell yourself, become the expert at selling as well. And once you've done that, then you can start growing your organization to bring in some VPs of sales and salespeople because you'll have have gone through the trenches. You'll know what they go through. You'll you'll be able to talk to them and motivate them and encourage them, and you'll basically also be able to recognize who's good and who's not, rather than just hoping that you get the right good salesperson on staff.
1: So when you're getting those salespeople on staff, what are you looking for now? And I guess what was that transition like from you going to sell? Because you said you're one of basically the sales guy for a little while. Was your next hire when there's only two of you another sales guy?
0: Yeah, we quickly did that once we started to get a little bit of success and when we had a little bit of budget. We hired a, a salesperson that we brought in. We so we did that not too long. Actually, later into 2011, we had a salesperson on our staff as well.
1: There's only three of you at that point. I don't know if you touched on where you all located. Yeah, we're in Utah. Were you just all working out of a small office? If there's three of you, are you in a facility with all your product? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, we had a small little facility, probably about 3,000 square feet. Most of that was office, but we had a little warehouse that we fulfilled out of. And then eventually we started to expand a little bit and get more warehouse. But yeah, just a small little facility with office space that we had over. You know, we had committed to that. Was one of our debt. We had lease that we had to pay back that we got behind on on our rent, and we were stuck in this space that was probably a little big while you needed And eventually we outgrew it, but we kind of committed to it early on when we had capital and hadn't burned through the capital. So we were stuck in a a bigger space than we needed at that time.
1: And how much capital were we talking about got infused? And you're talking about having to pay how overhead were you?
0: We had raised around two and a half million dollars at that
1: point in the game. You burned through almost all of it up to 2011?
0: Yeah. That's right. Where was it all going? Of course, we had salaries, we brought on some. I think I, t- I mentioned some executives and whatnot. But uh, we also, you know, in inventory. So we were in a, a really tough situation. But the good thing is that we had inventory, so we were able to sell our way out of that. We were able even to sell our apparel and free up some cash and turn those resources into the camping pads that we knew would be more successful.
1: So I'm just trying to figure out for an entrepreneur who's listening and saying they're able to get that much capital. If you had to do it over again, what would have been done?
0: good question i think again All my questions for,
1: are good right <laughs> they're really good yeah
0: and that one's a challenge for, challenging one for me to ask. And that's why it's a particularly good one, because I really wasn't in charge between the 2009 and 2000, 2011 years. I guess a little bit from the outside in, I mean, I was part of the organization, but I wasn't leading the organization as a CEO. Going back to where we started to have success, and that was going back and getting very guerrilla-ish and everyone being a salesperson. If I could go back, I wish that we would have all focused on doing sales at the beginning and selling product wherever we could. Of course, the things that we learned through those hard times really helped us become who we are now. I don't know exactly what if I would much because we were able to solve it out but I, re, I really wish we would have figured out the sales beforehand and I really wish we wouldn't have relied on outside sales people for a long time. Even when I took over in 2011 and we started to hire one internal salesperson, we still had independent sales people that we had a lot of faith in and it took us several years. Even today, I'm dealing with independent reps that I'm questioning the value that they bring to the table. It's always a thing but I've learned now enough that I can't put all my eggs in those baskets and we have to have internal people that are doing our sales.
1: What percentage of your sales are coming from like those independent guys versus your in-house now?
0: The vast majority is from the in-house. And don't get me wrong, there are independent reps that we have worked with now and we have great relationships and they've given us great introductions to new retail chains and partners that we wouldn't have had otherwise. All of those accounts still have an internal account manager that's watching over that customer. So there's not so much of a separation between our customer and us.
1: Before, even if you had an outside one, you might not have that internal manager looking at the account?
0: Exactly. We kind of just said, okay, that's your territory. Go out and do what you can. We just kind of had faith that they were doing the best they could and trying to open the brand and not having a lot of accountability back to the brand. Can you tell us a little
1: bit more about these outside sales guys? Because I'm just trying to think if I'm trying to make product or brand similar to yours. I guess I don't know. I don't understand how they first get connected with you as a company. Yeah. Yeah. Do they just come to you, knock on your door? Hey, I want to sell your product or how, how do they find out about you? and you tell us a little bit about that step in process
0: Most of the reps that we met were at the trade shows that we would go to. So for our industry, it's outdoor retailer. They have a summer and a winter one. So of course, you have the reps that are there and they're oftentimes looking for new brands. And of course, as new brands have need, then then those marriages just meet up. They were a little more organic. Of course, now we get a little more strategic and we'll look for reps that are carrying complementary lines, but not ones that will contradict our lines. So now we are we do the research from our side and go out and find those reps. I don't know if it's that common that reps come to... To you and looking for your brand. So it is, I mean, it, it is out there, but that's not the way it's played out for us. It's been us going and find the ones that we've wanted to work with.
1: But in the beginning, it sounds like if you're going to those trade shows and they're probably approaching you, a lot of those guys.
0: Sure. Yeah. A lot of the small ones that are just trying to pick up brands, right? Any brands and we're a small one and we don't have any presence in the Northeast or whatever. So it's like, oh, great. Yeah. You can sell our stuff in the Northeast. It's not that hard of a decision because there's not a lot to lose other than the fact that if you think all the Northeast sales is going to come from that person, then then that's the misconception I think I'm referring to.
1: When you're talking to them and negotiating, do they just take a certain percentage of sales, whatever they sell? Yep. Exactly. What's a common percentage that we'd look out for if we we're trying to make a product like yours and someone came to us what would be a fair range
0: in our industry it ranges between three percent and eight percent you know really more five to eight percent
1: and if you're talking to an entrepreneur that wanted to start up a product company
0: what would be like the
1: first steps looking back or what suggestions or tips would you have for them for starting up a company huh other than the I guess more of a product base since that's what your niche is. And we didn't get to really talk about your education. Do you want to hit on that for a little bit?
0: My background is in mechanical engineering. So I got my undergrad and my master in mechanical engineering and then my MBA with a focus in product development. Product, I knew I was always a product guy. I got bit by the entrepreneur bug. I was in my final year of my MBA at Brigham Young University here in Utah. And I kind of got bit by, I took some classes and I kind of got bit by that entrepreneur bug. And then I really got thinking, man, eventually I want to do something for myself. I had the opportunity at Climate not too long after I graduated to kind of come on. So it was kind of a good opportunity for me. So I am a product guy in core.
1: Yeah, and that's what I like because just looking at your background, seeing that is pretty interesting. But again, now that you know what you know, someone wants to start up a product business from out of their house on day one what
0: suggestions or tips would you have for them i hate to continue to harp on this but it really comes back back down to sales as much as i'm a product guy as i and of course i have all sorts of new ideas that come to mind all the time but my mind is a little more trained now to think more about the business case and not just how cool an invention it is you know but it's more about how much could i sell it for who would buy this thing I think we all as inventors like to think we think that way, but it's really easy for us to get caught up in that we just have the coolest product in the world. Really, if I'm starting up a company or if I'm advising someone that has a product that I think could be cool, it would be about figuring out how much people are willing to pay for that product as soon as possible before you start putting a lot of money into the business or into the idea. And there's a lot of there's a lot of platforms out there, right? Kickstarter is a really popular one nowadays. You can start figuring that out. Kickstarter's not the only one, but figuring out how much people are actually going to pay for your product is the golden question that you got to get to sooner than later.
1: And what's the biggest challenge that you've had to deal with personally throughout this as you're growing the company?
0: Well, the balance of family and family life and entrepreneurship is a tough one for everyone, I think. I'm really lucky to have a wife that really encouraged me to go the route. So she really supported me. But I see a lot of entrepreneurs fail or quit, I should say, because they have an extreme amount of uh, pressure at home just to bring in a steady income. And that makes it really difficult. And of course, I faced a challenge, probably a little bit less than a lot of entrepreneurs, but it was definitely the stress point of can I provide for my family while I'm trying to make this work was the heaviest personal challenge, which is probably true for most people.
1: Was there a part where you were thinking about quitting at climate and going get a regular job that paid?
0: Yeah, so I had confidence that we could pull it out, but I also knew that there was a limited runway that my family would be able to sustain the lack of lifestyle, I guess I should say. So there. Of of course there were times where I would pull up and see what job postings were out there and kind of get a feel for it. But I had a good business partner. I call him my partner. He's our VP of development and also operations now. And, and he was, I hired him as an intern. He was an engineer. It was the two of us I, I mentioned earlier. He and I were really strong and united together. So having that partner or someone that I could lean on and knowing that he was going through similar things that I was from a personal standpoint was also really helpful to get through that point. But I'd be lying if I didn't admit there were times that I was looking for a more steady, not aggressively looking, but you know, keeping my eyes open and networking out there for something that's more steady.
1: How were those talks like at home? I mean, and how close did you get? We could all have belief, right, that we can make this thing happen. But sometimes it comes to a breaking point where there's only so much money and you have to look for the steady job.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. My wife, we didn't, again, my wife's an angel. She she was very supportive and she could see that I was stressed, but she never put additional stress on me. She always had, I guess, a lot of confidence and faith that things would work out and pull it out. So the conversations and the stress, there wasn't a lot of additional stress added to my personal life due to my wife. It's a huge blessing. And if there was, I don't know how much longer we could could have done it. But definitely conversations of house climate. I would try to share the wins with her so that she could see that we were making progress in the right way. But not all days were like that. So I tried to, you know, I'll admit sometimes I hid the scary parts and the, the concerns that I had from her.
1: You're talking about the balancing family life and work life. How was it back then to where it is today? And what's your day-to-day like?
0: One thing I really learned is that the stress doesn't ever go away. It just kind of morphs into a new type of stress. Finding the balance now is just as difficult as finding the balance was back then. It was not like I was working 80 hours a week, and now I'm not. It's the same amount of, I would say, stress really is is just in a different way. Now it's all about growth. How do we secure you know, capital for growth and how do we sustain the growth and all that kind of stuff? Of course, a lot more steady now. We're we're profitable. We're making good money. We're really growing fast. But how do you sustain that is just a new mentality. I try to maintain balance, probably not great at it some weeks, but trying to make sure that there's family time and not bringing home the stress to family is super critical. The other part of your question was, what's the day-to-day operations? I'm very much of an operator. I like to really keep my hands hands in on it. I'm trying to teach myself and get myself to take myself out of more of the day-to-day and be more of a strategic driver. So I break up my week basically by different departments. For example, Wednesdays is my sales days. I try to make sure I'm following up with all of our sales guys. I still do some of our sales for our international partners. And so I really try to focus on our sales department on Wednesdays. Tuesdays is my product day, with my product guys we'll new and product innovations. Thursdays is my finance day. Make sure all of our finances are in order, meet with my finance team. And then, and Mondays and Fridays are kind of all, you know, marketing and all the other aspects that come in and putting out fires. So I'm a kind of a structured person. I don't want any part of the organization to lack. So I found that organizing myself and my way of thinking by department or by, by and by day has, has been helpful and useful.
1: And you talked about the stresses, how do you sustain growth? How do you do it?
0: Yeah, it really comes down to personnel. There's a course in every organization, you can only scale so much yourself. And then it's a matter of bringing people in and, st- and taking yourself out of the day-to-day operation. The stress really is nowadays is, are we getting the right people? Do we have the right people in the right place? Are we all pulling to the same vision goal? And really, I know that our product is good enough. I know the product will do good on its own, but if we don't have the right people, then we can't scale. So the- nowadays, my stress is more about that. How do we scale the organization personnel standpoint?
1: When you're looking for those personnel, how do you figure that out? How have you done it so far? That's what I'm just trying to get at because you've had such great growth, right? You said over the last couple of years. Yeah. What have you done well to make that happen?
0: We really made a key strategic hire about three years ago. We brought in our VP of sales and that was a big deal for us because now we knew we could sell. We knew the product would sell, but now we took someone that had experience and knew how to build out an organization that was scalable and hit retail and hit e-commerce, et cetera. So that was a huge hire for us. And I can still remember the day that we made that hire and and we were really excited and we had to headhunt him. I knew the person I wanted and I had to go and get him from a different organization. So it was hard to get to that point where we were able to get an offer that we knew we would attract him and get him happy here. That was a significant deal. And now we still are are similar. We're always networking, looking for the people that have the right fit for our culture. But we do somewhat take a shotgun approach when we're looking to hire and we'll just put an ad out in the local online marketplace and interview as many people as we can and get a feel for what the position's at, what what the opportunities are out there to fill positions.
1: Can you talk about this particular person and individual? Like, how did you know he was so great? And why did you want him so much? And how did you know he was going to help so much? Yeah.
0: So his name is Bart Miller. He was running sales for another outdoor company here in Utah that I had a network with. I had uh, our paths crossed all the time, of course, just being in the same industry. And I had once in a while picked his brain, wanted to call him up, take him to lunch, pick his brain, how he was running his organization at his company. How could I change mine? At one point in climate before we had hired Bart, we had a couple of salespeople now on staff. And I was kind of running it more like a call center. I was kind of asking our guys to have so many dials a day and so many calls a day. And I remember one particular lunch I took Bart. Again, he was an employee of Climate, but he was giving me some advice. And I told him how I was doing, and he just looked at me, and he, and he basically told me, that I was running it foolishly. And then if I had people in the organization that required that kind of oversight and management, and I had the wrong people on board, that kind of was a fundamental shift. I started to see how Bart looked at sales and, and bringing the right people in and giving them the flexibility to do their job. And at that point, you know, I really started to learn, hey, I want someone like Bart to come in and help me grow the organization. So I had identified him through just those, those networks and then made an offer to him when we could and got him to come over.
1: What was the shift? I understand a few of the things that he said, but when he came over, did he just clean house right then, try to find the right people? Tell us a little bit about his strategy. So if we're growing our company like yours, that hopefully we can bring someone in like Bart.
0: Yeah, no, he actually didn't clean house. He actually looked at the resources we had on board. I think he basically said, how can we maximize that? And of course, he was a very rubber meets the road kind of guy as well. He wasn't just leading the sales organization. He was doing sales himself and he still does today. And that's why he has a lot of respect of of his direct report employees because he's out there doing the same thing that they are. But he also knew how to manage people and, and organize things and channel alignment, helping certain employees have certain channels that they owned and making sure there wasn't a crossover on that. And those are things that we still struggle with. But He did not come in and clean house. I think he came in with some very clear, direct motives. He knew how to get it done. So he started getting it done himself, which even added more confidence to the team that we could grow. And confidence breeds confidence. And so the salespeople saw that he was doing it. And so they could do it. And then, of course, he started handpicking new people that we we would add to his team, which was super critical also.
1: So you said you had it like a call center, but did he make it more? Did he come in and say, hey, I want you to hit the road more? Or was there any other strategic things that he did?
0: Yeah. And when I say call center, I say we were managing it like a call center. It's still a very small group of guys, but... Yeah, he definitely came in and wanted to get people in front of customers more often. So that was super, super important strategically. That was uh, crucial. And then also just helping there to be organization in terms of who was focusing on what channels and setting goals, realistic, but stretchable goals. He understood what was realistic and what wasn't from his own experience. And so setting those goals and helping to train our salespeople kind of all that lumped together. That's what a good sales manager will do.
1: What do you think you're best at as, I guess, the CEO today?
0: I guess I found a way to be able to manage the different departments in a way. Hopefully, not a lot of balls are dropping, right? And
1: Unless you're a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess I would just say that I'm probably pretty good at multitasking and, and managing multiple moving parts in the organization and trying to keep them moving together in the right goal. That's pretty ambiguous question, right? I mean, I love product the more. I can get back into more product. I love to do that. And I'm finding I'm able to do that more, more and more so to help drive more innovation, which is another lifeline for the company. But for me, it's making sure that finance isn't the bottleneck. It's making sure that sales isn't the bottleneck, making sure that we're allocating resources to wherever we need to, not just money resources, but time and energy. Right now, it's a lot of it's on marketing. We hired a marketing director this year. And because we needed that, we were doing good on sales, but we didn't have any demand creation from our marketing side. We weren't telling our brand story. So, you know, hopefully identifying that and hopefully you know, I'm trying to juggle those and put all those pieces together at the same time. And it's difficult because all of a sudden you're focusing on marketing and it consume all your time and your innovation can drop off. You can become just a marketing company or you focus on product development. And you just become, you forget about the sell side. It's easy. It's super easy to get distracted and focus on one part of the business and leave the others to out to suffer.
1: No, I think it's smart the way that you pick particular days to spend in each department because I agree with you because after you start getting enough sales, what generally seems to happen is maybe you start going into more product development or maybe somebody just goes ball to the wall marketing and then forgets about sales, right? Yeah, I think being able to... Be smart enough to meet certain days, meet with those departments. seems like it makes a lot of sense to me. That's the reason I was just bringing it up to see what our listeners could learn from the most of what you're best at. But speaking of which, I want to also touch on what's your biggest challenge personally or business wise that's holding you back or your company back right now that you think you need to grow in?
0: Right now it's marketing. If you're just looking from a business discipline, it is definitely marketing. We've gotten to where we are, where we've gotten because we've got a good sales team and we, and, the, and the product just by virtue of itself, is great. Our brand prestige is starting to catch up to our product prestige, but we just need to get better at telling the story and getting the story out in front of more people because we know that they'll buy when they see and, and when they look at the product. That by far is our focus right now and putting more and more resources into it. And it's something that's a new discipline that, you know, we have to go out there and hire and, and bring it in because it's not a natural integral part of who we are at the core. We're, we're product guys, we're sales guys now. And so marketing is the new discipline that we need to become experts at.
1: How about you personally? Where do you think you need to grow in order to become
0: a better leader? I need to find ways to psychologically take myself out of more of the day-to-day operation and let my people do what I've hired them to do. And it's a confidence thing and it's a time thing, right? And as people earn their confidence, I find myself, it's easier to do that. But to scale the organization, there has to be greater strategic, greater focus on the strategy overall and time put on that. So I recognize that. Not a trust issue, but I just like to be involved in day-to-day operations. I like knowing what's going on. I like having my own realm of responsibility where I'm accountable to the organization, to my employees. Employees for certain things to accomplish, but there's only so much of that you can do before I become the bottleneck in the organization scaling.
1: How do you find out when there's those bottlenecks? Because it, it seems like that's really hard for people who might go from a one-person company to a two-person company to a three-person. You know, that you start realizing you're the bottleneck. But how do you see that today? And
0: what size is your company?
1: Because I don't think we talked about
0: revenues or number of employees. Yeah, we'll do. We got about 23 employees, and what we did about. 10 million last year in revenue. We'll double that this year, almost double it actually. And how do you look at
1: those bottlenecks now from like a CEO perspective?
0: How do I look at the bottlenecks?
1: Yeah, how do you figure out they're there? I guess you found out the marketing was there, right? How were you able to figure that out?
0: Yeah, I think it becomes pretty clear if you are involved, if you are not siloed in one department of the organization. If you take a step back and look at it, you start to see it pretty clearly. The marketing one was pretty clear just because there was big indications, you know, our web sales wasn't where, where we wanted to. So you look at the website, well, all your website's not convertible why isn't? Well, we're not telling the story. Well, why don't we tell them the story? We don't have graphic design. Well, why don't we have graphic? Because we don't have a marketing department, right? So it's pretty clear when you start stepping back. It's not clear if you're too siloed and too focused on one department. So again, that's how I try to identify that, right? Meeting with the innovation guys and seeing what products we have and seeing if that's going to support where we want to go with our sales projections or our goals for 2018 and 2019. Do we have the product that's going to support that? Or is that becoming bottom of the neck? just asking those hard questions, and having those management meetings where you're asking those hard questions, helps identify them. What question?
1: should I have asked you that I haven't asked you about growing your business? About growing the business. Or about entrepreneurship in general for someone who's listening?
0: Well, I might say, I don't know what the question is, but here I'll just tell you what I observed because I get a number of entrepreneurs or inventors that come and want, you know they have an idea of something that inflates and they want, they're an inventor and they come and they want to start this company. And where I see a lot of failures, I see a lot of people quit way too early. <laughs> we talked earlier about you only have a limited runway until life catches up with you. And you have to go get a good paint job. I see so many people quit way too early. I think about 2010, 2011 years of climate and how many people would just quit. And there was no need to just push through it. If people would just take their ideas and put more effort behind it. It's so disheartening to see so many people come up with good ideas. They just don't want to put the effort into it. They just want that easy home run where they're going to get a licensing deal and then sit back and rake in the royalties, or they're just going to hit that home run with Walmart and these types of things. And that's the most disheartening thing to me. I guess the question is, what's the number one big reason people fail on entrepreneurship that I've seen? And it's because they just don't give it long enough. They don't try hard enough to do it. Now, you have to be wise enough. You have to know when to pivot. I'm not saying beat your head against a brick wall forever, but I'm saying that put your heart and soul into it. And if you see, I'm a believer that people can accomplish great great things you'll have to pivot you'll have to change from what you start out doing but if you push hard enough through and if you have the determination to do it you will succeed there's everything in the markets out there for you to succeed in this country
1: hey there one quick message hope you're enjoying all of our episodes if you are then consider subscribing to our weekly podcasts just search for millionaire interviews in your podcast player and be sure to look for the chuck norris album artwork thanks again for tuning in when do you see most of those people like quitting? Is it like a couple months in or six months in, a year in? When do you see a
0: lot of those people quit that you think should keep going? Most of them, when the light in their brain goes on, that they start to see that they actually have to become the salesperson or they have to go out and raise money to get the salesperson. It's that commitment point, unfortunately. Most people that have committed to that and are hardcore and they're like, okay, I'm going to go out and knock the doors I'm going to sell this thing. They're off and running. Sure, some of those fail because their product just wasn't right for the market timing or whatnot. But most people fail as soon as they realize the type of commitment it's going to take to sell products.
1: Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. Is there any less? I I appreciate you saying that at the end, and I think most people just quitting a little bit too early, but is there any other last words of wisdom you want to leave people who are listening, like the entrepreneurs who want to start their own business? What would you advise them?
0: There's so many cool resources out there for us to go and explore new ideas without mortgaging your house. I think Kickstarter is a huge one, although it's changed a little bit a lot in the last couple of years. Huge place where you can go and test your market idea, actually see if you can get some financial support, put all your marketing pieces together. I just think there's so many different resources out there for people to get a good indication if their idea has uh, will take in the market that you shouldn't forget about those and you should leverage them and not be afraid of them. Right? I remember we did a Kickstarter project early on in the days and I was really worried about how much energy and what it would take. It was super easy. The feedback we got was really great. It just took a little bit of courage getting outside of the comfort zone and, and doing it. So I guess that'd be my last point of advice is use all those resources that are out there and helping you figure out if you have that golden idea.
1: Thank you very much again for joining us. If someone wanted to say thank you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
0: Yeah, my email is quarry.toll at climate. That's uh, C O R Y dot toll or T H O L L at K L Y M I T dot com. Throw that in the show
1: notes. So thank you again for joining
0: us. My pleasure. Thanks for your time.